Let me pray for us. Father, what more can be said about your son than that he is worthy to receive honor and glory? We thank you for opportunities with song to do that. Pray that our attention would be to your word as you teach us more about who he is and what he's done. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, will be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, you are a rock and you are a redeemer. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to, going to ask Angela Stonkis to come. She's going to begin reading in verse 2 uh, to verse 7, Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at a harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you so much, Angela, for reading God's word. So before we moved to Delaware, many of you know we lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I served at a church there. Most every weekday morning in Chattanooga at Hamilton Place Mall, before all the stores would open, a group of older guys would meet there, and they would walk around the mall a little bit, and then they'd sit down at the same table in the food court, and they would talk a little bit. Since one of my main responsibilities in my previous role at that church was working with our senior adults, I had the opportunity to join them occasionally. And I learned that this group of guys had the most amazing skill. And that amazing skill was they could solve the world's problems every single morning. So nightly, there would be new problems that would come up. But every single weekday morning, they would deliver yet again solutions for the most complex problems of the world. I remember listening and politely nodding. 
By the way, the same thing can be done at like any dorm room. They're solving the world's problems there. And I mean, these things happen all the time. I, I think I know why we all smile when we hear of a group of guys at a food court solving world's problems. I think it's because we know it's like if only. If only that's what it took. Just get a few people with some ideas. If only. But we know that there are complicated problems in our world that actually defy solutions. They're hard. There are problems in this world. There are problems in our country. But we don't even have to get that grand. There are complex problems. There are complex situations in our own lives, in our own families. I hope we as Christians never give off the impression, although we probably do sometimes, that when you become a Christian, you just don't have problems anymore. We know, we, we know better than that, right? We know better. We know we walked into those doors carrying burdens, carrying things that are complicated, many of which we've been working on a long time. And if only we could just talk about them and solve them just like that, life would be so much better. There are emotional problems in our world. So there, there's anxiety, there's panic attacks, there's an opioid e- epidemic. There's, this is no joke. This is the world we live in. There are moral problems in our world. People can't see right and wrong clearly. There's no consensus sometimes of even what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, even though these things should just be self-evident. There are social problems. Society as a whole has forgotten what it means to disagree without demonizing each other. We, We can't even do that anymore. And there are certainly relational problems. I wonder in Newcastle County alone how many, how many broken homes are there this Christmas? How many, how many homes have been shattered? How does all that get fixed? I guess you could think of the most complex problems in the world and you could will your way into being a wide-eyed optimist. The sun will come out tomorrow and it'll just all be better. But I, I find in my own heart, I tend, when I hear the world's problems like that, I tend to go more cynical than optimistic. Something has to change. The world needs something better. Surely it has to be headed somewhere better. That's what we want, but we know the challenges of this world so well, and it doesn't seem possible. That's why a moment ago, as Angela is reading the promises of Isaiah 9, that's why they sound so staggering to us, because the world that Isaiah 9 is wanting us to see, the world it is wanting you to envision this morning, that world is a place that we desire, we want. We know it's good news. When you read it, you read and you realize quickly, that did that kind of world didn't happen in Isaiah's time. It doesn't, it's not really a reflection of the world in our time, so it means it must be something in the future. But when you read things like the whole world sees this great light, the nation multiplies, there's prosperity, it increases joy. A whole world freed from oppression, no, no slavery, no bondage, no need for war technology anymore. That's done. These are staggering promises for us, yes, but even first to the readers of Isaiah who heard this message, especially because the, their situation looked so terrible and so desperate. It almost looked unbearable. Other, other empires were on the rise and they were on the decline. We've talked about this over the last few weeks as we've walked through the first few chapters here of Isaiah. Isaiah 9.1. So it kind of goes more with chapter 8 and chapter 9, but even Isaiah 9.1 talks about promises and hope and light coming. In, it says in the regions of Naphtali and, and 
the regions of Zebulun and the, the region of Galilee. And to hear that, if we were living in that time, we'd go, well, nothing good ever comes out of Galilee. Nothing good ever comes out of towns like Nazareth and Capernaum and Bethsaida. Nothing good comes out of that area. And yet here the promise is saying, no, 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 no. Light's coming in that very area. For these promises to come true, for this world that this envisions to happen, if you're thinking about it rationally, you're asking a couple questions. Okay, if we even take that to be true, how is that going to happen? And who's going to do it? How do these promises take place? How are they fulfilled? And who will do it? It's wise to slow down and take it all in because every single word has significance. And so when you go to like Isaiah chapter 9, and especially verses 6 and 7, like all these words have significance and it's wise for us just to take some moments and slow down. For to us a child is born. And to us the son is given. The government rests on his shoulders. His name's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You might hear that and hear like echoes of Handel's Messiah or you might at Christmas, you hear these words a little bit more regularly than the rest of the year. But these words teach us something. These words teach us that God is committed to saving the world. God is committed. When you read these words in context, you realize that God is committed to saving the world. And that's good news because if He's not committed to saving this world, you have good reasons for diminishing confidence in humans' ability to save much of anything. God is committing Himself to save the world. What, why can we say that? Where, where do we find that even in the text? Well, we find some allusions. So even in the Isaiah 9, there is this reference to the day of Midian, and there's pictures of like the exodus when God brought His people out of Egypt and delivered them from slavery. So we've got these stories, one's from Exodus and one's from Judges. The story of, from Exodus is God's mighty deliverance, His supernatural deliverance. And the story in Judges of Gideon and, and delivering the people from the Midianites and all the turmoil they caused. Unexpected deliverance, supernatural deliverance. And God says, I'm doing something and it's going to be on a grander scale than the Exodus or the time of Gideon. There's going to be more that happens when I come and accomplish this salvation. God is committed to saving the world. And it's not just what He says, it's even how He says it. I love Isaiah 9 because as you read, it's important to even follow the tenses of the verbs that are used. So I wasn't an English major. But as you read the tenses of the verbs, you get some insight. God is saying, like, this is, this is a done deal. For certain, I will do this. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Period. So he's talking about a future event as if it is completely certain. The light has shown. The nation has been multiplied. The joy has been increased. He has broken the rod and the yokes that have been on burdening the people of Israel. It's, it's even the tenses that are used. For unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. The government rests on his shoulders. And even when it's future, it's like the zeal of the Lord will do this. It will be accomplished. There's such certainty in these passages. And we need to sense the hope that Isaiah is building because 
you can read this afternoon if you want to read the first eight chapters of Isaiah. It seems like a lot of bad news, a lot of struggling things. But Isaiah is highlighting this situation that seems unbearable and desperate, and now he's sketching out hope, highlighting how redemption and restoration and salvation is going to come. It's going to come. It's certain God is committed to saving the world. This is big stuff that he's talking about. But it's not just that he's committed to saving the world. He's committed to saving the world through a person. You have to see that in Isaiah 9. It is not just that God is committed to saving the world through any means. He's committed to saving the world through a person. That's why Isaiah 9, 6 says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. This is a person. This person has a name. I, I love how how it says his name will be called, and then goes on to list all these names. That is like a, a regal, kind of a kingly pronouncement. We ask people what, what their name is all the time, even when we see a, a little baby. Like, oh, what did you name her? What, what is his name? But here, I mean, frankly, centuries before this child will be born, centuries before that, We've got this pronouncement, his name is going to be called. It just remind us, reminds us that salvation is coming through a person. It's stretching our minds and our hearts to think carefully, what is God doing here? Because when we hear a child is born, we're thinking of a human. But it seems like something more than that, not less than that, but more than that is going on. When someone is introducing someone significant, you've been there, you've heard it. When they introduce them, a lot of times there are multiple titles, they'll say, so... They might say, you know, our, our speaker for this evening is a brilliant engineer. She's an educator and a mother. And so different titles are being stacked up. Or maybe I'd like to introduce to you a person who's a visionary. He's a, he's a grandfather, but he's also a personal friend. So there's these titles. I mean, you could go on and on, all kinds of different roles that someone might have. And so they're stacked up, and we have something like that in Isaiah 9, only the titles that are stacked up are just amazing. With this child who is born, we have titles like Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I think any one of those, I feel like I could preach an hour sermon on them. I won't, not this morning, but I feel like I could, because these are themes that just run all throughout Scripture. And yet all these are, are kind of layered. So when we look for this child that is born, the son is given, we're looking for someone who will match the description of these titles. One I mean, of these titles, Wonderful Counselor, speaks to his wisdom. He considers all angles. His counsel is amazing. It's beyond belief. He knows human and behavioral tendencies. He knows trends. But even beyond that, he completely understands ultimate reality. None of that slips by him. And the government rests on him. He calls the shots and makes the decisions, which is the kind of person you want making these decisions, the one who knows everything about everything. He leads people. And, and if you're trying to form, like, who would that, what would that look like if a, a, a child were born, a son were given, and he were to be a wonderful counselor? What would that look like? I think things about him would be said like, like when he teaches, we would never have heard teaching like him. You can imagine that he would know how to answer every person. No one would trap him in his own words. His counsel would be wonderful. It'd be amazing. And as you read the New Testament, you do see one person emerging 
a child that grew up and grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. The title isn't just that he is a wonderful counselor, but also that he's the mighty God. We've read this so much, we don't necessarily realize. So he's talking about a descendant of David who is God, the mighty God. So a son, a child, is God. No one would have expected God in human form. They, they, weren't, they weren't looking for that. Even, even recently, I read a, a work of a Hebrew scholar who's not a Christian, he's not a believer, makes no claim to be a believer. He does excellent work, though, in Hebrew, and he, is, he kind of walks through this passage in the Hebrew, and he gives, a, in the footnote, he gives a translation of, this should be translated pretty much like mighty God, but it sure can't be saying that a human would be mighty God because that can't happen. And I, I want to ask, well, why can't that happen? And I think I know what the answer is because I don't think it can happen. It's never happened before. And yet this passage, even, even in the wording, he even admits in the Hebrew, that what it's saying is that this is God who is the mighty one, the warrior one, the one with military might. This is the powerful God. He's the everlasting Father. Another way of saying that is, is the Father of eternity. I think what that is highlighting is, is highlighting this nature of God to protect and provide and support and care for. That, that would be the ideal dad. So there's no perfect human dad. But if there were to be the Father who would, who would protect and provide and care, and I, I can speak probably for most of the dads in the room, I don't know that there's anything better than to see your kid thrive, to see them flourish. And imagine someone that does that for eternity, eternity, provides, protects, supports, encourages. It's not, it's not out, of, out of our imagination to say, if someone did that, when they would see people that were harassed and helpless, they would have compassion on them. It's not out of our imagination that we would think someone like this, someone with this kind of heart that would have kind of a fatherly heart for eternity would likely go and prepare a place. And if he did, he would do so so that where he is, there we would be also. This is kind of the work that someone like this would do. So we're sketching out the portrait. And then we have another picture that he's the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince, so he has power to leverage. But what characterizes his decisions and his rule is not just flexing to show his power, but to bring peace, to bring peace. Not a fake peace where, you know that kind of peace where everyone walks on eggshells to make, make sure you know who doesn't get mad. We know that kind of peace. That's not that kind of peace. It's the world-changing peace that is real and lasting, this description about a, a son, a child, it has to be more than, just, more than just a human, not less. We know that, but it has to be more. I say that because think of the best human you know. Maybe it's someone from the good old days, because everybody seemed to be better back then, right? But maybe it's someone that you remember who really was a dear friend, who really was a, a teacher that you admired or a, a coworker. Who's the best person you know? Who's the best human being you know? Maybe it is someone heroic who did things even in, in a battlefield that are amazing. Maybe it's, maybe it's someone showing strong courage. 
is maybe they're even a caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's. And they love, and they love, and they love, and they love. Think of the best human you know. Maybe it's the person who does small acts of service and love and faithfulness and courage. They affirm with their words and their actions, their hours of service. They, you never wonder they care. They always show up like, how do they even do that? How do they have the capacity to do that? Think of the best human you know. And still, I don't think you're putting these terms on them. I don't think you're saying, I would say they're the mighty God. No one says that about any human. We know better. We know better. We wouldn't say they're the, the Prince of Peace. They're the ones that, the everlasting Father. None of us use those titles, but here they're piled on one after another. And Scripture continues as you go through them, Isaiah 9, all the, all the way through Isaiah and into the New Testament. It does reveal more and more in the end there's only one person who can match that description, and his name is Jesus. Jesus, our Messiah. Verse 7 fleshes out even beyond the names. It says in verse 7, of their increase of his government, and of peace, there's not going to be any end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, he'll establish it, he'll uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So when this one, with all these descriptions comes, righteousness and justice go forward. The zeal of the Lord of hosts brings this, accomplishes this. So not only do we have a God who's committed to saving this world through a person, but we know this person brings ultimate peace. God could have just described an amazing person with these awe-inspiring titles. He could have stopped at verse 6 and just with all the titles, but it moves on into verse 7 in which it's not just that he has like a figurehead position with the honorable, whatever, nice titles, but he actually governs, he rules, he makes decisions. The increase of his government, there's no end. The government rests on his shoulders. He makes laws. He enforces laws. He applies those laws to individual situations. And that government always increases. And you would think, man, if any of us had unlimited power, that'd be a scary thought. But when this Prince of Peace has unlimited power, it means there's peace all over this world. What an amazing thought. Peace which we have to understand even the biblical concept of that, the the ancient Hebrew word would be shalom. And it doesn't just mean the absence of war. Peace as it's meant here, shalom is meant like wholeness, everything together, no fracture, no defect. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So peace just starts spreading. Yeah, peace with God. No fracture in that relationship. Can you imagine? No fracture in your relationship with God. No fracture internally. We, we all have guilt and shame that we wrestle with. Imagine being whole on the inside as well. Wholeness as it relates to each other. No hostility, no division with one another. The whole world flourishing of His peace, there will be no end. It will just keep going going and going for eternity. No end to it. And in the end, like, how does that happen? And we're told in verse 7, this is how it happens. The zeal of the Lord accomplishes it. The zeal of the Lord does it. The burning desire of the Lord. So it's not human ingenuity that makes it out. It's not like we get this think tank together and they, they produce some solutions. It is God's passion. So this is on God's job description, none of ours. We couldn't do it. But he has the zeal to do it. He has the desire to do this. So the God who brought you creation and desired all this to reflect his glory, 
the God who called patriarchs out of land and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, the God who called his people out of Egypt, the God who brought his people into the promised land, the God who brought his people back from exile, the God who sent us Jesus Christ. God loved the world in this way. He sent us Jesus. The zeal, the passion of the Lord, the internal desires committed to this happening. And what a story, what a hope, what promises. And I'm so eager that we would be shaped by that this Christmas, but I am fearful of something, and I want to tell you what I'm afraid of. Is you can hear verses like this, and you can hear titles like this, and you can hear about Jesus Christ's governing authority all over the world, and that can be just like a train passing you by. It can be like you're just watching it go by because you don't have an investment, you don't have a relationship with this one who will bring peace, but it doesn't have to be that way this morning. You can know this one who brings peace. Do you believe in him? I'm not just saying, would you mark the box you're a a Christian, I'm saying, do you believe in him, who he is, what he's done? Do you understand what his life accomplished, especially as it relates to making us whole? Do you realize he made peace because we had sinned? We were condemned with no, no parole, no man-made pardon in sight, but he died on the cross, and in that death, he reconciles us to God. He makes peace. But Ephesians 2 says, not only does he make peace, he is our peace. We were alienated from God. We were in darkness, but now we've been saved. He's our peace. Because we can have a taste of that peace now, full enjoyment of it when these promises fully come to pass. Our lives can be not just to make our kingdom and our name great, but for His glory. I started this morning remembering guys who met each morning to solve the world's problems. And you and I, I realized those solutions were, were far from realistic, far from comprehensive especially knowing our world. But we have hope beyond pipe dream wishes. Was this message that you heard today from Isaiah 9, was it for you? Do you believe this? Does this drive your life? Or is it just incidental to it? Is it driving who you are? Does it mean everything to you? What if this Christmas was a marked change where you realize life's too short to play games. To just play some sort of religious game and somehow tip your hat to God. What if, what if this year something changed there and you realize, no, this is a person who came on a rescue mission for me. And if I put my hope and my faith in Him, life on this earth changes and certainly life for eternity changes. What if you let someone know that you have confessed with your mouth and believed with your heart that Jesus really is God's crucified Messiah who's been risen from the dead and has power and you're putting your hope in Him. What if you reached out to someone for spiritual help because you say, I feel lost, not found. I feel like I'm in spiritual darkness, not in light. What if, what if this was a turning point? What I do believe is there is a Father, our Heavenly Father, ready to meet you. And I do know there are people in this room, there will be people afterwards, even up front, that would be glad to talk with you more about this. I do believe, and part of the reason why I share this morning from Isaiah 9-6 is this message is too good to be contained. It's just too too good to go, well, that was a nice service. And then we'll get into presents and Santa Claus and good food and this is too good to be contained. 
right? Our church has to know this. We have to share it. We have to share it in our conversation. We have to share it in our songs. We can thank God even in our prayers. We can invite others into this story. Because it is truly, it is truly, and we're going to sing this in a moment, it is truly in Christ alone that our hope is found. And if, if that's the only place where there is hope for this kind of rescue, this kind of world, if everything else is just guys around the table inventing solutions, but if there's real hope in Jesus Christ, then that's just too good to be contained. And our lives ought to demonstrate we are overflowing with this message of rescue. Because to us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And he has titles that only, only would qualify to be given to Jesus. And all the government in the world rests on his shoulders. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this description that you gave to Isaiah. And we recognize so many people waited in hope for when would that child be born? When would that son be given? So many waited to find when is that description going to be filled out. And they hoped and they longed for the day. And now we know. We're reminded even as Champ read earlier, you have in Christ revealed to us your nature, what you're like, who you are. It's unmistakable now that you care. And because we know Jesus, we know you are for us, not against us. And so I pray that we would sing even the words that we sing in a moment would actually reflect reality in our heart. And so where that's not the case, bend our hearts, reshape our hearts, remold them. So we might say in Christ alone, that's where my hope is found. We ask all this in his name. Amen.